The ballots are cast and votes are still being tallied as we speak. And even as we wait for answers at the very top of the ticket, we do have results in some of the biggest races here in Oregon. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is a live election night recording of Beat Check with the Oregonian. Tonight, journalists from the Oregonian and Oregon Live will join me to talk about the election results we know and those we don't yet know. Uh, we're going to start off with state and national politics. Hillary Baroud covers the Oregon state government. Jeff Manning is a financial reporter who's dabbled in covering several races during this election cycle. Thank you both for taking time to join me on this election night. Sure. Thank you, Andrew. So, Hillary, let's start with you. One of the biggest questions of this election, at least locally, is what will happen to the Oregon legislature? Democrats have controlled both chambers, but they don't have a supermajority that's uh, strong enough to deal with uh, people walking out, right? So that's led to multiple walkouts. What do we know as of 1041 on Tuesday? Sure. Yeah, it's it's unclear at this point. So Democrats were going into this with 38 seats in the House, and that was more than they more than the supermajority that they need just to pass taxes without any Republican support. But it was a couple mm-hmm. she- seats, um, two seats shy of what they need to basically have a quorum on their own, and so Republicans had used this tactic um, once in the House this year of just walking out and stopping all business. So we had a couple seats change hands that we actually called tonight. One was in Bend, which was anticipated that it was going to be really tough for the the moderate Republican there to hold on to her seat, Sherry Helt. So a Democrat out there, Jason Kropp, Mm -hmm. um, a deputy district attorney, did win that. We called that race. Down on the coast, though, Democrats lost an open seat where they had a longtime incumbent, Caddy McCune, and she was leaving. And so um, the Republican down there, Boomer Wright, um, couldn't tell you off the top of my head whether he's <laughs> a boomer. That's um, a, what a name, though. Name or nickname, um, Boomer Wright has one down there. So you can see that You've got a plus one and a minus one there. And then we have several races that are still too close to call. So that's what we're waiting on to see what the balance of power will be in the House. Um, Over in the Senate, we have several races that are too close to call right now, which could just mean that there could look like there's a pretty significant margin, but we don't have enough votes in from the crucial areas to be confident to make that call. Um, we might just want to see that more ballots are counted from certain counties. And the Democrats did pick up one seat in the Senate already. That was in Salem. Um, Deb Patterson, who is a pastor and a healthcare, I believe she's a former healthcare worker, also a healthcare policy advocate. She won against Denise Bowles, who is a, um, hospital employee down there and former hospital lobbyist. But then we have a couple other Senate races that are still up in the air, including in the Bend area. All right. So we'll wait and maybe know more on Wednesday on those fronts. But uh, let's go to the the highest uh, 
high-profile statewide race, um, Secretary of State's race, Shamia Fagan, the Democrat, prevailed. Um, that's an office that's been held by a Republican p- for the past four years. Um, what type of changes should Oregonians expect with Shamia Fagan uh, in office? Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think that since the Oregon Secretary of State oversees elections, a lot of times people might draw some connections between um, decisions that impact, say, um, the process of an initiative getting on the ballot Mm -hmm. and whether a Democrat is in the office or a Republican and how they handle um, vetting that uh, in terms of whether it gets on the ballot. So if we see a lot of, so Shamia Fagan, she's a, um, state Senator currently, she is almost two years into her first four-year term in the Oregon Senate. She's an employment lawyer, and she got a ton of money um, to your campaign from the state's public employee unions. And they are often involved in ballot initiatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost always either in putting them forward or opposing them if it's something that is maybe coming from the business, from the business lobby or business area of the stakeholders. Well, Oregonians made some significant changes to drug policies tonight. I don't know if you've had the time to to look at this, but both measure 110, decriminalizing most drug possession and directing funding towards treatment, and measure 109, creating a program for therapeutic use of psilocybin or psychedelic mushrooms. Do you have a sense of how significant this is from a statewide picture? Well, you know, I have to admit that I have not had time to to read our coverage on that since I was yeah. writing my own stories um, tonight, but certainly another area where, as I understand it, we're going to be first in the nation on, on drug policy issues. And it is interesting that advocates for those kinds of liberalization mm. of drug policies look to Oregon and just, just pour money into Oregon to get those, Um, kinds of initiatives passed. I think Dr. Bronner's (laughs) has been kind of on the forefront of that. Yeah. Well, um, Jeff, I'm sorry to keep you waiting here. Um, Do you have any thoughts on those drug measures? Um, Other than flashbacks to my 1970s college dormitory? (laughs) um, Yeah, I never never thought I would see the day that uh, magic mushrooms are... On a path toward, yeah. I mean, it it is another, you know. Jeff, that's what's shocking to you and not the small amounts of meth and heroin. Well, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just surprises me. I mean, uh, um, the fact that there will be therapeutic uses for it is really interesting. And yet another thing I didn't expect. Another challenge for for Oregon Health Authority going forward. But um, also, I'll quickly note that Oregonians also passed Measure 107, amending the state constitution to allow campaign finance limits and disclosures and Measure 108 taxing vaping products and raising cigarette taxes. But um, Jeff, we talked earlier uh, on election night um, about um, the congressional delegation and, you know, Peter DeFazio, ultimately he held off this tough challenge from, uh, Alex Scarlatos. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? It, it seemed, uh, it seemed to be a little easier than folks might've expected. 
I think that there was some, maybe some wishful thinking out there that maybe we might have a race with a little bit of drama, uh, but uh, there wasn't a whole lot of drama. Um, you know, Scarlato's, Alex Scarlato's did really well from a 28-year-old guy who was uh, certainly never run for federal office before. Um, he got 45% of the vote and mm-hmm. uh, uh, to DeFazio's 52 uh, he sort of narrowed the gap as the evening went along, but uh, in the end, the voters decided to go with the, uh, the entity that they knew for the last 30 years. And I tuned into uh, DeFazio's thank you on uh, Facebook mm-hmm. just now and uh, classic DeFazio, you know, he's trying to be very humble and soft-spoken and, thanking all of his volunteers, thanking all of the people who voted for him. And, and within like 30 seconds, he just went off on Trump and <laughs> talked about the the most corrupt administration in the history of the country, bar none. And, and he, that's just DeFazio. And it was uh, tough to script the guy. And uh, it was yeah, refreshingly Defa- DeFazio moment. Yeah, and he obviously uh, is the chairman of the House uh, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and it looks like that title will be retained uh, with Democrats poised to retain control of the House. You know, Jeff, you've been around uh, political circles for a while now. I mean, a 28-year-old um, in Scarlatos, who's a newcomer, but he was a, a veteran and also a hero, you know, who thwarted a, helped thwart a terrorist attack uh, on a Paris-bound train back in 2015. What do you think uh, of his political future? I know it's, you know, he just lost, but um, I mean, is he a guy that we might be hearing more from? He is a guy who struck me as uh, a 28-year-old, you know, uh, and just not out of the service for that long and uh, suddenly finds himself on Dancing with the Stars. And uh, Mm. good for him. He deserved it. He's a hero. Um, Was he ready for... You know, the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, I don't think so. But, uh, but you know, he's, uh, he's, it's a nice persona that he's got. He's a, he's a smart guy. And uh, if he wants to stick with it, I, yeah, I certainly think there could be a real future for him. And uh, DeFazio was elected to Congress in 1986. So Scarlatos was, you do the math, he was negative. However, many years old at that Thanks time. Thanks for reminding me how old I am. <laughs> exactly. All right. Quickly, though, Jeff, um, the other uh, congressional race uh, of really a powerful Oregonian representative of the delegation, uh, Greg Walden, is no no longer going to be in Congress. Uh, Senator Cliff Benson, and Hillary, feel free to chime in here as well. Um, State Senator Cliff Benson is, is uh, headed to Congress. Uh, what should we expect of anything uh, with Pence going to Congress in Walden's place? Uh, I think Hillary could answer this question better than I. I think, I, I don't know the guy. I just I knew his rep as a, as a solid uh, Republican um, who just, you know, was a workmanlike guy, could be relied on. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, boy, in the re- Republican primary, which was loaded, um uh, he really trounced the field in a way that's really surprised me. Yeah, he had been in the legislature for a number of years. He'd just recently gone over to the Senate after serving in the House, and, and he did mm-hmm. have a reputation for 
really being knowledgeable in technical stuff in the energy industry. He's a lawyer. He's worked for power companies. And so when, um, when the legislature was working on green energy policies, he would really dig into it. And he, you know, he wasn't always against it, although he was, he did oppose cap and trade, which was the big policy that Democrats really and their and right. their um donors and really really wanted to get through for the last two years um and he did walk out right he, he went to idaho on that yeah. yeah so he he stuck with the caucus on that but there are other things where he supported a subsidy for solar power in the last few years that i that i've been covering the legislature so i think just kind of a keep his head down kind of guy um and it'll be interesting to see how he does in Congress and if he uh, if he gets smooth and <laughs> slick with his time in D.C. Yeah, well, obviously the Republicans will be losing or Oregon Republicans will be losing a pretty powerful seat at the table in Walden, who was part of the, you know, inner sanctum of congressional Republicans um, and on the national committees as well. So we'll see. Uh, how long it takes Mr. Benz to rise those ranks. Um, across the country, uh, there's been this big focus on voter access this year, uh, p- particularly given the pandemic. Hillary, have we seen any issues around people being unable to cast their ballot here in Oregon? Well, that was really one of the things that was encouraging to me. Um, after all the concern about this, we really didn't hear of significant issues in Oregon and didn't really hear of significant voter intimidation. There was in- one incident that had been reported down in Springfield, but it was sounded like it was um, not clear that the person who had allegedly been maybe seen as kind of intimidating down there that they'd even set out with that goal in mind. So I think Mm. for all the fears, I think that that was something really positive about how this election went off so far. And did we hit record turnout? Do we know? We are hitting records in a daily turnout compared to, you know, based on how early people were turning out and what, what numbers or percentages. I wonder if this will go down as the year that uh, Oregon's vote by mail became sort of an accepted standard across the country um yeah. just judging from the number of people who voted early number of people who voted by mail and the lack of any huge problem so far um maybe it's paved the way for other states to to adopt i know there's been a lot of clamoring for for that from you know elected officials locally and maybe maybe you're right jeff i mean obviously uh, some states like florida that have uh you know historically pretty significant Republican populations. They vote by mail. Utah uh, vote by mail. Um, you know, it's it's the norm. Maybe this brings it nationally. I guess time will tell. It, it just really seems archaic for people to have to stand in line out in the elements in November yeah. for hours to vote. I mean, that's just, I don't get it. As a lifelong Oregonian or virtually, I guess, as moved here when I was five, it's un- unthinkable. So I'm, uh, we'll see, though. Um Thank you both for talking about uh, what we know right now and uh, yeah, try to get some sleep. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, you too. 
Hey, I'm Andrew Thien. I am back with two of my colleagues. Uh, Everton Bailey Jr. covers Portland City Hall for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And Edder Campazano covers Portland Public Schools. Thank you both guys for joining me on a Tuesday night election night. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having us. No place we'd rather be. <laughs> Everton. We're going to start with you. Um, you've been covering this hotly contested Portland mayoral race between Mayor Ted Wheeler and challenger Sarah Iannarone. What do we know? It's 11.05 on election night. What can you tell us about uh, this race? Well, I'm not sure if it's been officially announced yet, but uh, just had discussions with our management in the newsroom, and we are officially calling the race for Mayor Ted Wheeler to uh, win his second um, term in office. As of right now, uh, last, uh, last results that we've seen, Wheeler was slightly ahead with 47% of the vote. Sarah Ann Arone, the challenger, had about 41%, mm. and Rydens had uh, about 12% of the vote. So it was a little too close to call, but I think right now the math pretty much works out in, in, uh, the incumbent's favor. And so we will be calling the race for, for Ted Wheeler. Now, all of us who have been living through this year, living in this city, you know, it's been it's been a quite a ride with more than 130 plus nights of protests and demonstrations regarding racial injustices and police misconduct. So it might be surprising for some folks to know, you know, the incumbent is not sailing through. He's squeaking through. But I mean, what's your take on this? You've been covering this for a long time. I mean, what's your instant analysis here, Everton? I think what we're seeing in the mayor's race, um, like I said, we're at this point, at this point, we're calling it for Mayor Wheeler and also in the position four race, the race with Mingus Maps, who unseated incumbent commissioner Chloe U. Daly. I think we're, what we're seeing is, uh, Portland voters mostly siding with candidates who are not strongly in favor of cutting more money from the police bureau. Um, I, you know, commissioner U. Daly, uh, in June was the lone commissioner who didn't support the $15 million cut from the police bureau budget because she wanted to be more in line with what the public was demanding in 50 million. And recently her and commissioner Joanne Hardesty have called for taking an additional 18 million. Um, Sarah Yannarone, the mayoral challenger has also been in favor of the $50 million cut saying that, you know, she also agrees with doing what the community uh, what a, a majority or a large amount of community members are calling for. Uh-huh. Um, Mayor Wheeler has said recently that he thinks 15 million is enough and that some people will need to make an extremely compelling argument to him that more money taken from the police bureau will lead to increased public safety. And I think overall, I think a lot of voters believe uh, just from me talking with them as well, that uh, public safety and police are synonymous. They're they're one in the same. Um, mm. Other people have tried to make the argument that public safety and policing don't go hand in hand. Uh, but I think that's the that's the belief, and I think the uh, that's a belief from a lot of Portlanders, and I think that's what's playing out in uh, in the results here tonight. Uh, before we get to Edder, you mentioned Mingus Maps. So now the city council will be majority people of color in Portland. Um, that is a first. What does that mean for 
the city moving forward? I, I know it just happened, but do you have any, any thoughts on what that might mean? I think, you know, representation matters. And uh, as you mentioned, in 2020, for the first time, the Portland City Council is going to have more people of color. Uh, uh, the, the majority of the council is going to be made up of people of color. And that means something. Mm. Um, as far as what it means, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, Commissioner Hardesty, for example, is, uh, you know, the first black woman who was elected to the Portland City Council two years ago. Yeah. She is all about cutting as much as possible from the police bureau. Uh, Mingus Maps, who is now the fourth black man, a fourth black person elected to the city right. council, third black man. Uh, he, he wants to have the police bureau to have a seat at the table so they can be part of uh, discussion talks about public safety. And, and Carmen Rubio, the first Latinx commissioner uh, who starts in January, uh, she hasn't publicly said either way what she wants to do. And so she could be, you know, either way. So it, it's not exactly clear yet exactly what it means. Um, commissioner Hardesty, uh, I was on a press call with her a little earlier for the um, mm-hmm. the ballot measure for the new police oversight commission that also passed overwhelmingly with 80% of the vote. She was saying that, you know, she was sad to see that commissioner you daily uh, wasn't able to retain her seat, but she was very much looking forward to working with commissioner elect Mingus maps and was hoping to find some middle ground with him. So I think at this point, everyone's going to be working together to try and find some consensus, but it's not exactly clear yet what all of this will mean for the city council going forward. And in case you're you're just joining us, the Oregonian Oregon Live um, has called the Portland mayor's race uh, for incumbent Ted Wheeler. He's the first mayor in what twenty years to be reelected um, to a second term. He is uh, since Vera uh, Katz. Yes, yes. So he was uh, before him. There were three one-term mayors, and so yeah. he stops that. Um, I guess you wouldn't say yeah. line of succession, but he stops that. Uh, that trend stops with him. Um, and Edder, sorry to keep you waiting there. Um, you covered the Portland public schools bond, um, for us and Portland schools in general, um, which that bond passed pretty handily tonight. Um, I know from your reporting, there's kind of a question of whether or not they were going to move forward this in this coronavirus era, but it seemed to have paid off, right? Yeah, no, like we talked about earlier, you know, the $1.2 billion bond, which includes extensive renovations to North Portland's Jefferson High School, mm-hmm. uh, was originally envisioned as $1.4 billion that would roll in Wilson, Cleveland, and Jefferson. Um, of course, the pandemic changed things quite a bit. Um, and toward the beginning of the summer, the principals of all eight high schools that weren't Jefferson uh, wrote to the superintendent and school board and said, hey, we know that we're going to have a bond no matter what. Um, put Jefferson, like put Jefferson right. at the front of the line. What what do you think this says, if anything, about um, how Portlanders view PPS? Well, the bond, uh, at least currently, is leading three to one. About 75 percent of voters have said that, yes, they they would like to retain the current property tax rate of two fifty per one thousand dollars of assessed value, um, which by design is the way that, uh, you know, the number crunchers at PPS have designed this so that. They're selling bonds out into the future, and mm-hmm. it's not going to raise the tax rate. And I think that resonated with voters a little bit. But if you look at the PPS bond in tandem with the Preschool for All initiative that um, made it through this uh, tonight also, uh, both of them 
uh, or uh, both campaigns, I should say, uh, campaigned pretty heavily on the notion that these particular measures were going to benefit black, indigenous, and other communities of color first and foremost. Um, and I don't think that that was uh, lost on people who voted for them. Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because um, the Metro Transportation Bond, which, you know, was on, on my beat, failed pretty spectacularly. You know, really, it might tighten a little bit um, over time, but it went down. And, you know, this was kind of a scattershot messaging approach where they talked about this is going to be- benefit black, indigenous and people of color communities on 82nd and TV highway. And maybe there wasn't as coordinated of a, of a messaging, but it, it seems like voters wanted to vote for, for those types of causes, but maybe this was the wrong taxing measure or, you know, it just didn't hit right. Right. And I mean, I think another thing to keep in mind there is, with the pandemic, um, you got to think about what sort of things really came to the forefront for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I, I know plenty of folks, both personally and just from looking at the polls that different outlets have commissioned, mm-hmm. uh, child care has been a huge thing ever since the pandemic really hit. And so that, I think, worked really in the preschool for all campaign's favor, because, I mean, who isn't thinking about where their kid can and should be? during the day now, um, since so many of us, um, yeah. some yeah. of us included, excluded because we only have cats, um, you know, how many of us are thinking about where our three and four-year-old kids could and should be um, while we're all working from home? Everton, quickly, I mean, the police reform measure, um, we haven't talked about that, and, and that passed pretty easily as well. Um, is that something that voters should view as a good thing going forward? Uh Yes, uh, possibly. So what, what, what it was is it's a measure to amend the city charter to establish a new, you know, civilian populated police oversight board. But really, it's the framework. There's a lot of different things that still have to be sorted out over the next 18 months, at least, including, you know, how are members selected, for example. Uh, but it won big. 82% of voters uh, voted for it. Um, it would be a lot different from the current system right now, which is... Uh, you know, uh, the police, uh, independent, the independent police review, which is currently overseen by the city auditor. Um, you know, right now, the, the new, uh, this new framework for the new oversight board is supposed to have greater powers than IPR, like investigating cases where officers use deadly force or, and firing officers who are found to have committed, uh, serious misconduct. And it will also have a much larger budget than IPR. Um, and so, but there have also been opponents who have said the proposal was rushed to the ballot. Um, this particular proposal was, you know, developed over about a month before it was referred yeah. to voters by the city council. And the police union has called it illegal and has hinted that they're going to challenge it in court. And the city auditor has also uh, came out against it, saying that there are different systems in place, like state law and the city's current contract with the police union that are really going to hamper any system in terms of providing more accountability um, or and more transparency or rather more transparency to, uh, to police accountability. Yeah. So, so voters said no to two candidates who were 
looking for deep cuts to the police bureau and Chloe Udaly and Sarah Iannarone, um, but they turn around and vote overwhelmingly in favor of this uh, oversight reform. Right. Kind of interesting. Um, well, thank you both for your insights and for taking time to talk about it tonight. Appreciate it. For sure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us for this election night edition of Beat Check with Your Oregonian. You can subscribe to our weekly show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you already listen and you like this show, give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. You can support our local reporting with a subscription to Oregon Live. Go to OregonLive.com slash pod support. And thanks. Until next time.